Right. Well, good morning. So good to be with you guys again. Um, this truly has been special uh, to be able to see uh, at least a good portion of the church in, per- in person, and I certainly don't take it for granted. Um, do bear with us as we're still trying to work out um, what it looks like to safely worship together. Um, even as I'm putting my stuff down here, I realize I'm like, my Bible will probably get bleached over time, um, but that's okay. Um, why, don't, why don't we uh, bow our heads together as we look at God's word together this morning. Lord Jesus, we once again turn to you and we invite you as you've invited us to be with you in this time. We now invite you to indeed use your word as a mirror to reflect the things in our hearts and in our lives that we need to see. And sometimes those things are difficult to look at. There are things that we don't want to see there. We may not recognize are there. And when we see them, it may hurt to see. But once again, Lord, we come to you in trust and in the full assurance that as you've proved upon the cross, that your only intention and desire for us is only ever for our good. And so we open up our hearts to you at this time. We invite you to speak, and we invite you, even as we've confessed throughout our time, uh, throughout this worship thus far, shape us more and more into your image, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are continuing in our study through the Gospel of Mark, and our text today is another heavy one, uh, as we studied last week. It describes the betrayal of Jesus by a man named Judas, right? A man so infamous that if you call someone a Judas, even if they're not church, uh, even if they're not religious, even if they're not familiar with the Bible, if you call someone a Judas, they're going to know what you're getting at. Because once again, he is known to be a betrayer. And so as we study this passage, we definitely see the depths of Judas's treachery. But the sobering fact is, is that we are far more like him than we'd like to admit. And that's tough to see. But at the same time, we find hope, right? As we fix our eyes ultimately not on the betrayer, we don't want him to be the central character here, but as we fix our eyes on the one who was betrayed uh, for our sake, Jesus Christ. So I want to study this text uh, under these three headings, drawing out lessons under each. And so, deception, assimilation, and naturalization. Deception, assimilation, and naturalization. And I'll explain um, what I mean by each of those. So first of all, deception. Looking at verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, right, to his groggy disciples who couldn't stay awake with him in prayer. They're probably rubbing their eyes. It says, while he was still speaking to them, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. By this point in the gospel, we're nearing the end of it. We know who Judas is. There's not really a need to describe who this person is. We know who Judas is. But that description there, one of the twelve, serves to highlight the depth of the betrayal. Serves to highlight the shock 
and the depth of Jesus' betrayal. He was one of the twelve, one of the inner circle, one of Jesus' most trusted friends. Jesus had loved, poured into this man. Jesus was never married. And so as far as human connection goes, it didn't get any closer than the disciples. They were the closest to him. Judas heard all the same teaching, witnessed all the same miracles, was not only ministered to by Jesus, but he ministered alongside of Jesus, uh, participating in ministry with Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. Jesus gives these instructions to the 12, all 12 of them. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Judas was there, involved with all of that. And so you see, as much as Judas's name to us is associated immediately with betrayal, a backstabber, a betrayer, like that's where immediately where our minds go, what we have to appreciate is that in real time, while this was happening, in real time, Judas's betrayal would have been a complete and utter shock to the disciples. I mean, Jesus knew, but everyone else watching, it would have been a complete and utter shock. Think about the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. It doesn't say, and then all of the disciples began to glance over at Judas, rolling their eyes, shaking their heads, right? Doing the, uh, <coughs> Judas, we all know, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> anyway, um, that wasn't happening. Instead, what happens? Jesus raises the issue, one of you will betray me. And they're not glancing at Judas. They all say, is it I, Lord? Could it be me? They genuinely had no idea. They questioned themselves first and then eventually each other. Judas was the one entrusted with uh, the, the care of the money bag, their financial resources, which meant he got that job. Why? Because he was seen as a trustworthy person, as a wise and prudent person and reasonable person, not rash prone to make rash decisions, perhaps like if Peter had the money bag and they come back and be like, Peter, what? You bought a boat? We didn't need a boat right now. You just blew all of our money. But they didn't ask Peter. They asked Judas. And it was clear he was seen as someone dependable, trustworthy. They could not foresee. They did not foresee what he was capable of until what he was capable of became reality. And this fact should sober all of us. Because if one of the 12 
one of Jesus' inner circle ultimately proved to be an unbeliever, then it is certainly possible, and not just possible, this is one of the things that keeps me up as a pastor, it is certain that there are those who professed Christ in churches today, including our own, who by all appearances seem to be genuine believers, perhaps even leaders of the church. Judas, after all, was a leader. Yet in the end, proved not to be genuine believers. Jesus makes this stone cold clear. Matthew chapter 7, 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? This is no exaggeration. Jesus is not exaggerating here. Judas did these very things alongside of the other 12, and yet... The Lord will reply, even to people who did things like that, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. C.S. Lewis once declared there would be three surprises in heaven. And I'm going to change the order up a little bit. But there would be three surprises in heaven. One surprise is seeing yourself there. That when you behold the unveiled glory of God and all of his holiness and greatness, it's a wonder I'm here. Thank you, Jesus. The second surprise is who you see there. Who is there? Really? That guy? Her? Never imagined it. Never could have believed it. But the third and very sobering surprise will be who is not there. Man, that brother, that sister, we hung out all the time. We served together. person was in church every week. We went on short-term mission trips together. We led together. Looks can be deceiving. And as sobering as it is, when we think about the fact that we can be deceived by the, the true condition of another, the true state of another, spirit, another person's spiritual condition, as sobering as that is, the fact that we could be deceived about somebody else, it's all the more sobering and frankly for us, all the more consequential. You can be deceived about yourself. And this is why the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're saved. Now, he's not saying, right, that we somehow save ourselves. He just listed in, in the prior verses, he lists, a bunch of, he lists a bunch of character qualities, and he's not saying by doing these things, that's what saves you. That's not what Peter's saying. Rather, his point is, if you have been saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
if you have truly been called and brought into his love, his electing love, these qualities will be found in you. And here's the important part. These qualities will be found in you, not just at the moment of your conversion, but continually. And, verse 8, in increasing measure, growth in these things. So it's a warning not to be foolishly presumptive about the state of your soul. In other words, don't bank on past experiences alone. Whether past positions you were in, well, I led this ministry and I served in all these ways. So did Judas. Don't presume upon past positions in and of themselves. Don't bank on past professions just in and of itself. I said the sinner's prayer. I remember. I was 10 years old at a retreat. I said the sinner's prayer. That's not to discount that God can save through that. Of course he can. But don't bank on that alone. Let me, let me say it like this. Instead, confirm your calling and election, not looking to past professions and past positions. Confirm your calling by how you're living right now. Don't just bank on a singular moment of faith and repentance way back then. A singular moment of faith and repentance. Rather, the question is, are you living a lifestyle of faith and repentance? Today, this day, is there something in your heart that strives to turn from sin and turn to Christ? Not just in 1980-whatever, I mean, that, that's my age. But today, I'm still striving to turn from sin and turn to Christ more and more. That's what it's about. And again, just to be absolutely clear, I don't want anyone to be confused on this. We do that not because by doing that we're trying to save ourselves as, as if our salvation is in question all the time. It's always up in the air if you're not doing well enough. No, 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 that's not what it's saying. Rather, living a lifestyle of repentance and faith serves to confirm, as Peter says, that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you realize Peter, he betrayed Jesus too, to his face, Denied him three times. The difference is, he truly repented. Whereas Judas just lived in worldly sorrow. He didn't actually repent. He went and hung himself. Because he never belonged in the first place. That's the power of deception. Second, Assimilation. Again, though it seemed as though Judas treasured Christ and treasured the kingdom of God, what he actually treasured was money. John chapter 12, verse 6 clearly tells us he would help himself to the money bag. He would take money out of it for himself. And he ultimately chose to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So again, he appeared to value Jesus 
And he appeared to be one who was committed to living by the values of the kingdom. But ultimately, he was still driven by the values of the world. He was supposed to be living as one who was called out of the world. But what ultimately, what we ultimately see in his life is that he was living as one whose heart was still in the world. But you see, Judas wasn't the only disciple who struggled with this problem. He certainly stood alone in his unbelief, but he was not the only one who struggled to live worldly ways and worldly values behind. Verse 43 tells us, Judas brought with him a crowd with swords and clubs. This was a type of police force under the supervision of the religious leaders, and they were tasked with maintaining order, guarding prisoners, and sometimes making arrests. That's who they were. And they fully expected Jesus and the disciples to put up a fight to resist, which is why they are armed. And so Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss, which was actually the culturally appropriate way for disciples to greet their rabbis. They would kiss them on the cheek. It was culturally appropriate. And, and, and that was the way of ensuring that, number one, they would get the right guy because it was dark out. And number two, that they could minimize any threat of the disciples putting up a protest and fighting back. Right? In, in a way, it was, a, it was a, a, an attempt to catch Jesus off guard, to keep him calm, kiss him on the cheek, grab him. Verse 47 tells us, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Mark doesn't name him, but Gospel of John tells us it was Peter. There he is again, rash Peter. And we don't know if it was because Peter had terrible aim or if the guy had a helmet on and the sword kind of glanced off the helmet and took his ear off. But what is clear is that Peter was ready to use force. Peter believed Jesus was the true and rightful king of the ultimate kingdom, God's kingdom. But he was trying to bring about Jesus' kingdom through worldly methods. Worldly values, force against force. From other gospel accounts, you know, we know what Jesus says. He's, he's quiet in Mark's account, but from other gospel accounts, we know Jesus told Peter, put away your sword. No more of this, says Jesus. And even reaches out his hand and heals the ear of this man named Malchus. And Jesus says in verses 48 and 49, Have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. He's saying, you're acting as if I'm some kind of criminal. And the literal word there is robber or bandit. But some translations actually will say here, am I leading a Rebellion? Because you see, insurrectionists were common at the time. Fighting back, desiring to fight back against the Romans, there were 
insurrectionists that were quite common, and they would use force. They would use violence, and they, some had perceived Jesus as that kind of a threat. But Jesus makes it clear, listen, my kingship and my kingdom are completely different. Completely different than the king and kingdoms of this world. That's not how I operate. I operate by a completely different set of values. Judas professed to value Christ, but he truly valued money. The religious leaders professed to value God and his kingdom, but what they truly valued was the applause of man, which is why they arrested Jesus in secret, in dark, at night, as Jesus said. You you could have arrested me any day at the temple, but they didn't want to because they knew it would be an unpopular thing to do. So they professed to value God, but they really treasured the applause of man. Peter, Peter genuinely did value Jesus. However, When push came to shove, literally, when push came to shove for Peter, he resorts to the world's ways of doing things. His first instinct, grab a sword. The question that this text confronts you and I with this morning is this. In what ways are you In what ways am I still shaped by the world's values rather than the kingdom values? We have witnessed those who profess the name of Jesus, and again, only God knows the true state of someone's soul. But we have witnessed people who profess the name of Jesus, but some of these people professing the name of Jesus out of fear of losing Christian influence in this nation, they have grabbed for the sword. And for some, that's literal. Like, it got physically violent. But even if not physical, there are some professing the name of Jesus in seeking to, as Peter did, protect the kingdom. They are employing world's the world's ways. Hating and being hated. Returning evil for evil. Escalating tension. Being slow to listen and quick to become angry and defensive. All putting it under the banner of not compromising and being bold for Jesus. And you know what? I bet that's how Peter would have described his actions too. They're trying to arrest Jesus. Let's be bold for Jesus. Take the guy's ear off. How much of our view of gender, and and I'm so thankful God's given me a daughter, because frankly, it's helping me see the world and appreciate the world with a new set of eyes through her eyes. How much of our view of gender is shaped by the world's values? Whether toxic masculinity Chauvinism, treating women as if they were inferior, or, on the other end of the spectrum, the idea that gender itself, a, a, a clear distinction God has created, is irrelevant and just a social construct. Are these worldly values shaping you? 
Is our view of sex? Is our view of money and possessions? Is that more shaped by the world's values and ideals or kingdom values and ideals? And the thing is, these values have shaped us far more than we realize. The church leadership right now is actually going through, uh, with the help of a ministry, um, um, Irwin Ince, Cross-Cultural Institute, as our, our church desires to continue to grow to be a faithful, multicultural church, the leadership has um, invited uh, one of these organizations in to, to help us learn and grow in this, cultural assessment. And one of the images they used to teach about the realities of culture and differences in culture is this picture of an iceberg. And, and so on the face of the iceberg, or the tip of the iceberg, above the water, uh, you know, there's things that are obvious, right? Customs and foods and ways of dressing. Those are the obvious cultural differences. But then you got that whole huge chunk underneath the water that isn't immediately obvious. Deep, deep values, deep, deep worldviews that people are living out of in a way that they're not even aware of. And this is certainly true as Christians. The world's values, whether ethnic, cultural, but the world's values that so often can conflict with kingdom values shape and influence us far more than we realize. We often quote Tim Keller here at Renewal, but speaking of appreciating the giftedness of women, I'm going to quote his wife, Kathy Keller, today on the topic of materialism. And she, in her own right, is an incredibly sharp and gifted woman. In fact, Tim, I think, says she's smarter than him. But anyway, and that's probably true of most couples anyway, um, how we might Under this idea of materialism, we might be very quick to say, I'm not materialistic because we're just judging by the standards of the culture around us. But in light of kingdom culture, perhaps there's more to it than we realize. And so here's what she writes. Materialism doesn't only express itself in a desire for enormous quantity or superb quality of this world's goods but by locating happiness in the things of this world. You may have no craving for designer fashion or statement jewelry or cars or yachts or other symbols of elite status, but ask yourself this. How much of my contentment is based on this world providing me with fill-in-the-blank? Being able to take the family out to Shake Shack without counting pennies, the affection of a pet, not losing the light and view from my window because a new building is blocking them, and so on. Losing such commonplace comforts will always cause a degree of regret, but will it overthrow your happiness? If so, you are a materialist. Materialism simply means that your happiness, joy, contentment, and satisfaction is tied to something in this material world. 
A salary however small, status however low, possessions however modest or threadbare. If our hearts are inordinately tied to these things beyond just the affection we feel for the familiar, then we are materialists. This stuff runs deeper than we realize in ways that we cannot often see. The Sermon on the Mount is a great place to turn to be reminded of what the values of Christ's kingdom are. And the sermon starts with what we call the Beatitudes, a a, a list of character qualities. And some have actually written an inverted version of the Beatitudes, the anti-Beatitudes, because sometimes when you look at the opposite side of things, it brings more clarity. It helps to bring more understanding. It's like when they used to have this stuff called film in cameras, and you would develop it, and there's something called a negative Right? It's, it's, it's the opposite, the, the, the contrast. It's showing the parts that normally don't get lit up. And likewise, by looking at the opposite of the beatitude, sometimes that brings further clarity as to how worldly we really are. And so I'm going to read a version from Pastor Ray Ortland. He calls it the unbeatitudes. He says, Congratulations, not to the poor, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Congratulations to the entitled. For they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they're going to still look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at their feet. When it comes down to it, which values are you really living by? What's your instinct? Like Peter in this passage, do we profess Christ on one hand while still being assimilated to the world and its values? Finally, naturalization. In verse 49, after making clear that the religious leaders had every opportunity to arrest him in public, but again, didn't do it out of fear of the people, Jesus says this, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. None of what happened to Jesus came as a surprise. It was a fulfillment of the plan of redemption agreed upon by Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels to be exact. But instead of grabbing for the sword, he went under the sword for our sake. For a people, all of us, we too often kiss him on the cheek, declare our love to him, but then betray him. Treasure, love, serve, go after all manner of idols. It is cosmic treason. We are truly criminals and insurrectionists, and yet Jesus died as a criminal, as if he were the insurrectionist, taking our place. And for all who sincerely believe this, Colossians 1.13 says, 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, I'm going to phrase it like this. You and I once belonged to the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the prince of darkness. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you become a naturalized citizen of the kingdom of God. It did not used to be your kingdom, but it becomes your kingdom. It becomes your home, the kingdom of the beloved son. And that process of naturalization is not contingent upon you passing some test as you need to do to become a U.S. naturalized citizen, a test that I don't think most American-born citizens could actually pass. But thankfully, citizenship in the kingdom of God is not about you passing the test. It's simply by trusting Christ has passed the test for you. And when you believe that, not only does that trust in Christ change your status, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light, not only does it change your status, it also changes your very value system. You begin to become more and more instinctually kingdom-minded. More and more instinctually Living out the values of the kingdom. Instead of grabbing for a sword, you seek to promote peace. You're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, whose spirit now dwells in you and is shaping and forming in you those very kingdom values. But as you and I know, it takes time. That process is slow because, again, the culture of the world is so deeply ingrained in us. We are discipled by it every day. As you talk with coworkers, as you watch media, social media, you're being discipled in worldly values all the time. And so that process of being discipled in kingdom values, it's slow and it happens in spits and furts. Uh, spurts and fits. <laughs> spurts and fits. Adjusting to a new culture takes time. I, you know, I think about, I don't know why as I was thinking about this, the image of my grandfather came to mind. My dad brought him over to live with us when he was well into his late 70s, early 80s. He was born in 1901, and all he ever knew was life in Korea <laughs> And old-time Korea, that was the culture he was raised in. And so coming to a, America was a huge adjustment for him. And I always have the images of my friends coming up to him, and, you know, I'd go to their houses, and their grandpas would be like, oh, welcome, what's your name, where do you live? And then come to my house and be like, hi, Mr. You. And he just, and literally, he wouldn't even say hi. He would just turn around and walk away. I remember we'd get Big Macs, and he would open the carton, and he would cut it into fours, and then he would grab his chopsticks and start eating the quarters of the Big Mac, dressed in a full suit, mind you. He would always wear a suit at home. That's how he was raised. And I'm like, he has to be the only person in the world at this moment eating Big Mac in a suit with chopsticks. Adjusting to this country and its ways took a lot of time. 
Because these cultural values and ways of being run so deep, and so it is with us. It takes time, but Jesus says, I'm committed to it. I will do it. You will look like me. You will value like me. And I'll close with this. The more and more this happens in your life, the more and more you begin to live according to kingdom values, you can be assured, just like Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends and acquaintances, the more closely you walk according to the kingdom values, the more and more you will experience the abandonment of this world because you're not going to fit into this world more and more. And that stings. It's hard. And so here's the dual struggle of the Christian. We need to be aware of the danger of just imbibing these uh, worldly values, grabbing for our sword, acting like the world. When the world threatens, some people do that. They just act like the world in return. But when the world threatens, some people do what Peter did later. He ran away and hid. And for Christians, our temptation, when it starts to get hard out there, amongst your coworkers, amongst your friends, how can you believe that? You really believe this stuff? That's so old-fashioned. That's so bigoted. It's anti-intellectual. And when you begin to feel ostracized, you begin to feel, that's hard. And your temptation then is to just hide from the world. I'll only hang out with Christians. Because it hurts to get hit like that. But when those feelings, when you're beginning to feel alone, so to speak, what's going to help you is go and be alone with Jesus. Go and be alone with Jesus because he gets it. He lived it. He knows it. And he will empower you not to hide away, but to boldly go out and continue to love and serve a world that might hate you back for it, just as he did, and just as Peter would do too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, continue beyond even this service. Continue to expose through your word and spirit as we walk with you ways in which the ways of the world are still driving us where we've been too assimilated to this world even though we belong to your kingdom and you're citizens of your kingdom. Show us the ways in which we so often reflect the kingdoms of this world and expose these things that we might Turn away from them in a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And in so doing, as we turn to you, we know that your promise to us is that you who began the good work in us will bring it about on the, till completion on that day. You promise to finish this good work you started in us. You will shape us more and more by the values of the kingdom. And, and when that When that happens, Lord, as odd of a fit as we might be in this world, and as alone as we might feel at times, remind us to go and be alone with you, to be empowered once again, to step out, not hiding away, but boldly engaging this world 
even when and even if and even though it hates us in return, that we would return the love of Christ just as you love those who hated you. And our prayer as we do so is that those who may have once seen themselves as your enemies and perhaps even our enemies would become friends, would become sons and daughters of the kingdom too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's rise and close in this song.